For the past five weeks now, we've been in a sermon series titled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And we've been singing the Psalms of Ascent. These are the same songs that were sung thousands of years ago by God's chosen people, the Jews, as they made pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the high feast days. And today, Palm Sunday, we're going to continue that journey with Jesus and his disciples and the hordes of other people crowding into the great city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, normally when I think of Palm Sunday, I usually focus on Jesus and his disciples, but of course, all the roads into Jerusalem were crowded on Palm Sunday. Everyone is headed in the same direction, everyone with the same destination, Jerusalem. Everyone wants to get to Jerusalem. And maybe we've been taking our destination for granted this Lent. If you've been in Christian-y circles for a while, or if you've read a bit in the Old and New Testament in the Bible, um, you probably have some sense that there's a spiritual connection between the literal and historical city of Jerusalem and an idea of Jerusalem as signifying a spiritual destination, maybe a symbol of the ideal community or of heaven or the afterlife that exists beyond what we can currently see and touch. And you would be right. But why Jerusalem? Jerusalem today is a huge world-class city, the capital of Israel. And in Jesus' day, it was also a great world-class city, uh, the capital of Judea. But Jerusalem was not a destination city for the Jews just because it was really big and had the biggest conference centers and the best caterers for the Passover feasts. Um, Jerusalem was really special to the Jewish people. Not a city like any other, but a city loaded with both earthly and spiritual import. Theologian Walter Brueggemann writes that Jerusalem was seen as the center of God's peculiar attentiveness to his chosen people and as the seat of the world's best hopes for well-being. For Jews in the ancient world who were living as an oppressed minority scattered across the Roman Empire, gathering regularly in Jerusalem would reinforce their identity as a distinct people. And it would have also all the positive connotations of a big old family reunion with your extended family. Jerusalem was the place where everyone you cares about is present and everything that is meaningful to you is celebrated. Jerusalem was a place where the strife and conflicts of life under Roman rule is set aside for a bit and you can relax and rejoice with the people who love you and know you best. And, importantly, Jerusalem was the site of the temple, the place where the very presence of God rested on earth. A feast in Jerusalem then meant reunion not just with your extended family or with your people, um, but reconciliation with God himself. It reaffirmed the peace between God and his chosen people. Even the name Jerusalem is special. When we say Jerusalem, the Salem is shalom, the word for peace. Profound, restorative, celebratory, life-giving peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. 
the abode of peace. And you don't have to be Jewish or even religious to imagine and hope for a time and place that is marked by goodwill and well-being. We live for and love those glimpses of shalom that we get when we spend time with a good friend, when our conscience is clear, when we feast in the company of loved ones, when all seems right with the world. So with that understanding of Jerusalem in place, let's move into today's gospel story and join Jesus and the disciples on the road to Jerusalem. We're looking today at the Palm Gospel, uh, and you can find the text for today's sermon in two different places in your bulletin. The first part is found on page four, and the second part is found on page 14. So the setting is this. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling many miles toward Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, and now they're just about half an hour's walk from the city gates. They've ascended Mount Olivet, and now they're preparing to descend the west side of that mountain, traverse the Kidron Valley, and then begin their final ascent into Jerusalem itself. So from where they are on the side of the mountain, they can now see their destination. They can look across the valley and see Jerusalem. Here, Jesus pauses to give some instructions. These begin verse uh, 29 and 30. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. And he goes on to give some more really specific instructions about uh, what will be said and what will happen there. And at one level, of course, these are just practical instructions about the necessary logistics for the trip. Jesus says, hey, I need a donkey to ride. Here's where you should go and get it. Please go on and take care of that. But there are other dynamics present here as well. Until now, in the story of Jesus as told by Luke, in whose gospel we're reading today, Jesus has referenced the kingdom of God over and over again. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And yet, and while he is not yet to this point referred to himself as the king of that kingdom, this is about to happen very shortly. The disciples are about to name him just that in a few minutes. Jesus is king. And Jesus is also here fulfilling the words spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the tradition of the day, a king who entered a city riding a young donkey instead of, say, on an experienced war horse, was explicitly coming as a king in peace to that city. Jesus, the king of peace, is coming in peace to the city of peace. And though he is coming humbly and in peace, Jesus also comes in authority. These simple instructions he gives regarding where and how his transportation will be arranged underscore his divinity in a subtle but really visible and functional way. Those who obeyed him found everything just as he said it would be. And this underscores the reality that Jesus 
has come to this day to Jerusalem fully aware of about uh, what's about to happen to him, as was described in uh, the Passion Gospel. He is coming to meet his own death, not as a hapless victim, but in willing self-sacrifice. This is a powerful moment indeed. Jesus entered the great city of peace as its king, the king of peace. Now, the rest of today's passage is a study in two distinct ways that we respond to such an extraordinary visitation. We'll look first at how Jesus' own disciples respond to him on this journey. When Jesus speaks and acts with humble authority, his disciples respond with obedience. They have come to know and love the man of peace, so they obey him, they honor him, they rejoice in what they've seen, and they proclaim the peace of heaven to all who can hear them. They obey the specific instructions Jesus gives regarding the donkey, and they find, indeed, everything just as he said it would be. In verses 34, 35 and 36, they bring the donkey to Jesus, and then they begin throwing their cloaks on it and set Jesus on top of the cloaks on top of the donkey. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They offered their own cloaks, not only as a saddle for Jesus, but so that even the hooves of the animal he rides wouldn't touch the ground. In this way, the disciples honor Jesus, and they proclaim their submission to him as the king of peace. And as they do so, their minds are filled with memories of all that their beloved master has done, all that they have seen Jesus do. As the procession gets underway and takes off down the side of the mountain, in verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. These disciples have seen Jesus healing the sick, exercising demons, making the blind to see, feeding the hungry, raising the dead. And all of these memories are coming back to them and they are filling up with joy. They recall all the love that Jesus has poured out in power on his people over these years and now they honor Jesus with their praises, loud praises. On this journey, the disciples obey Jesus, they honor him, they praise him, and finally, they begin to proclaim him. Listen to verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples are so overcome with the joy of who Jesus is and what he has done that they begin to introduce him to everyone with an earshot as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They declare that peace of heaven and glory in the highest is eminent. Peace and glory are present here, now, embodied in this man, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a beautiful and glorious reality that God in Jesus embodied peace in order to bring peace to us. How precious that this proclamation comes spontaneous and unprovoked from the lips of those who love Jesus best and followed him most closely. 
What a glorious way for the king of peace to enter the city of peace. This procession is gaining momentum. This whole multitude of disciples are rejoicing and praising God with all their might. They're declaring the peace of God to all who hear. They're picking up speed as they come down the mountainside. And then Jesus stops. He slows down, and it's as if he pulls over to the side of the road. Like you pull over to the side of the road for a scenic overlook. Because from where Jesus stops... He can see the magnificence of Jerusalem spreading out before him across the valley. And as Jesus slows the procession, then stops the procession, you can imagine the the crowd quieting down, maybe a little bewildered by this loss of momentum. The cries of joy and the declarations of peace die away. And Jesus begins to weep. His eyes are fixed on Jerusalem, and he cries. And this is not a gentle flow of emotion. Maybe his expression of sorrow began quietly enough, but the Greek word translated as weep here means to be overwhelmed by deep, profound sorrow. Jesus begins to sob with the loud keening, a wailing of profound grief. As Jesus looks to Jerusalem, the city of peace, his heart breaks. Now, this is not the deep distress that he suffers because of his own impending death coming up in the city. That sorrow will come later, on Monday, Thursday, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Neither is he weeping for his disciples, those who will ultimately obediently follow him into suffering. This is even alluded to In uh, today's Passion reading, Jesus says, as he's going to his own crucifixion, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Here, while those around him rejoice and triumph, Jesus' heart is breaking for those who refuse to follow him into the city of peace. The irony is crushing. Jesus enters the city of peace as the king of peace, And how will the city of peace receive him? Jerusalem rejects his offer of peace, and the whole place will erupt in violence. This is a tragedy for Jesus, of course, as the king of peace becomes the target of betrayal and lies, accusations, mockery, contempt, suffering, beatings, and death. But again, Jesus is responding here not to the violence that he will suffer, but to the violence that will befall all those who reject peace. It's the grief of a God who desires nothing more than our perfect peace with him. The God who became one of us in order to make a way for us to enter the abode of peace. The God who withholds nothing from us, but literally offers his own body and blood as protection for us from our own sin and violence only for us to consider his invitation, think about it, say, no thanks, turn away, and walk into our own destruction. Hear the cry of the man who wanted to save the whole world. This is verses 43 and 44. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. At one level, Jesus is prophesying about an event that was still almost 40 years in the future. In around 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem and much of the city itself would be destroyed by Romans who were, ironically, trying to suppress a Jewish rebellion. Jesus is describing an historical event that would occur in the future, and he's prophetically linking this historical reality with a spiritual reality. The city of peace would be destroyed because it rejected the king of peace. Anytime we reject true peace, destruction follows. And this reality was going to play out in a very visible, public, visceral way for Jerusalem. Jesus is naming and lamenting two tragic realities about Jerusalem. He is lamenting the reality that Jerusalem did not know the things that make for peace. And he's lamenting the reality that Jerusalem did not know the time of visitation. When he says, you did not know the things that make for peace, this is a way of saying that Jerusalem didn't know the terms of peace. They didn't know the conditions of peace. To live in peace, Jerusalem must be reconciled with the king of peace. Because all of us, men, women, children, we are not natively in ourselves people of peace. Just look at the world that we live in. Look in your own homes. Look anywhere. Look at how we treat one another. We are not a people of peace. If you have ever, even once, said a sharp, unkind, undeserved, harsh word to someone, if you've bickered with a loved one or uh, lied about somebody you dislike, if you've persisted in pride, if you've ever overlooked someone of low status in order to buddy up with someone of high status, you know that you are unfit to live in the city of peace. We all are. We are all natively in ourselves people of violence and selfishness and pride. If we attempt to enter the city of peace on our own terms, rather than on the terms offered by the king of peace, the city of peace becomes a city of destruction. If you mix people of violence with people of peace, you have a violent city, not a peaceful one. And if none of us are capable of peace in ourselves, it becomes clear that we need to submit ourselves to someone who is capable of peace, we literally need a savior. And so God himself came to save us. The humble, selfless king of peace came riding on a donkey to lead us into the city of peace. All we have to do is follow. Those are the terms of peace. We acknowledge our complete inability to live in peace apart from Jesus. We repent of our violent and rebellious ways, and we become disciples of the king of peace. When we accept the invitation of Jesus to follow him into the city of peace, he provides everything needed to cleanse us from our pride and violence. 
By his own pure and perfect holiness, he makes us fit to live in a city of peace. The invitation to peace is here. The means of peace are given to us. The path of peace is opened before us. Nothing is lacking but our willingness to embrace the man of peace and make him our king. Those are the terms of peace. The second lament of Jesus over Jerusalem was that they did not know the time of their visitation. This phrase, the day of visitation, the time of visitation, is used all throughout Scripture to refer to moments in time when God breaks into history in a powerful way to deal in justice. It has always been had a double-edged impact, these days of visitation. It's a day of reckoning, a day when the typical status quo of our human existence where good and evil are mixed together in our hearts and in our dealings with one another, when peace and violence are, are jumbled together, this sort of status quo is disrupted and justice is distributed by the only one capable of providing a justice so pure that peace breaks out. You're familiar with the slogan, no justice, no peace. On the day of visitation, justice comes to town and peace is established. And it changes forever the destiny of those who are visited in this way. For those who have submitted in love to the king of peace and long to be close to him, This day of visitation is a consummation of delights. The day of visitation becomes the day of salvation, the day of reunion, the day of rejoicing and redemption. But for those who have resisted peace, who do not care for the king of peace, those who never wanted to follow him, and who resisted the invitation to embrace him, the day of visitation will always catch them wrong-footed and unprepared and it will end in destruction. Like Jerusalem, you and I are being offered terms of peace. We have an invitation to follow the king of peace in obedience, offering him honor and praise. Like Jerusalem, we don't know the day of our visitation. That day of reckoning will come to us, but it will come at a moment we cannot predict or anticipate. And in fact, the longer we resist committing ourselves to follow the king of peace, the blinder we will become, blind to the reality of our own sin and blind to the invitation of Jesus. Jesus says, now these things are hidden from your eyes. You have not heeded the call, this invitation to peace, and now you can no longer see it. Hence, there is real urgency and consequence to our response to Jesus. For those who have ears to hear, today, April 14th, is the day to prepare for this day of visitation. Hear the invitation of Jesus to us this Holy Week. Come with me, Jesus says, into the city of peace. And every single one of us, whether you think of yourself as a good guy or a bad guy, a religious person, or not religious at all, Jesus comes to absolutely every one of us with the same offer. Follow me into the kingdom of peace. Let me lead you there. 
All of us are invited into the incredible privilege of doing just what those disciples did on the first Palm Sunday. We can obey him like the disciples did. We can honor him like they did. We can praise him. We can proclaim the day of peace to others. And we don't have to be good or smart in order to do this. The disciples were neither particularly good nor particularly smart. All that is required is to follow Jesus, cling to him, draw close to him, acknowledge him as your king, and he will not fail to bring you with him into his kingdom. Now, I don't know what it looks like for you today to respond uh, to the invitation of the king of peace. It's going to look different for each one of us. And our lives as disciples are comprised of hearing and responding and hearing and responding to the invitation of Jesus again and again. I'd encourage you this morning just to take time to ask God what he might be inviting you to. Where in your life is he calling you to peace? Where is he asking you to accept the terms that he has for you? Um, The offertory today is a great time to, as you sing and as you listen, to just ask the Lord directly, where would you have me respond to you today? How can I follow you more closely? How can I enter into your peace, not on my terms, but your terms? Um, Just ask and listen And if you hear the Lord speak to you, then I'd really encourage you to take an additional step of talking to someone about what you've heard and how you long to respond or are willing to respond. Um, You can do this uh, with a a friend or a trusted um, person here. Um, Later on during communion, there'll be time to meet with a prayer minister too. Father Aaron will give you details about when and how that might happen. Um, And even if you're not ready to accept the terms of peace with Jesus, if you find his terms frustrating or off-putting, but you'd like to talk this through with someone, we'd love to talk with you about that as well. None of us are following Jesus perfectly, but nothing brings more joy than to help a brother or sister come near to Jesus. Grab hold of his foot or the hem of his robe as Jesus rides meekly toward Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. We can follow him as he leads us into the holy city of peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.